and just being like, man, you know, again, like fifth edition, I like it, but I was getting kind of bored with it. And I wanted to see what else was out there. And I saw all these really creative people doing really cool stuff, really great things with layout. I mean, people talk a lot about Morkborg because it's, you know, wild in terms of its layout. And that was so cool to, to see. And I think kind of on the other end of that spectrum, old school essentials, where it's everything's very concise and very nicely put together. Um, yeah, and that got me thinking like, I also, I need to try in my hand at some weirder layout things. Hi, welcome to the Daiku Podcast. I'm here with Lex Mandrake. And aside from being a super name for a James Bond villain, look at that outfit. Like, boy, <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that. Dress for success. I really love it. But uh, Lex, welcome to the Daiku Podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. I love the podcast. Great, great. Thank you. Uh, so Lex, we want to talk about uh, a lot of your different products and your game design journey as as it's come through over the years. But uh, as always, we got to start with, how did you get into role-playing games in the first place? Oh gosh, well, let's journey back to the mid nineties, everyone. <laughs> when I was- what, <laughs> The way like, back machine, hold on. Yeah, ooh, ever, uh, fashion was terrible. Um, and uh, I was like eight or something. And uh, my friend, uh, Dan, his aunt worked for TSR in their like, I forget what department she was in, but she had a bunch of their product. I think she was like marketing or something. Uh, and because as we know with TSR, they overprinted everything. Uh, she just had a bunch of stuff in her basement. <laughs> and she was like, Dan, here, have all these D&D books, play it with your friends. And he was like, oh, okay, sure. So that was um, second edition AD&D was my first introduction because we just had a bunch of books. And like, such cool stuff uh, that just grabbed me, like a bunch of the Ravenloft modules, a bunch of the Dark Sun modules, uh, and a bunch of Forgotten Realms stuff, some Dragonlance. And yeah, I mean, I didn't understand how to play it. None of us did, uh, but I was super hooked on it and it was amazing. Uh, and that was how I got started with the game. I mean, played for a few years, still didn't understand how it worked because we were all too young and the rule books were too complicated. And then Watsy bought the TSR and third edition came out. And we, at that point, we had like found our local gaming store that we were really interested in like hanging out at. And we're like in middle school at this point. So it totally tracks, right? Um, and uh, we started going there, buying magic cards, playing D&D on a weekly basis, got the third edition and uh, uh, the rest is history. I've played some RPG ever since. I took like a short break during college because there just wasn't time, right? I actually got more into board games during college. Like uh, some of my friends really liked Arkham Horror. And we would like, if we could devote like a, like a Saturday night or something, instead of going to a party, we were going to set up Arkham Horror and play it until like 3am. <laughs> and that's one of the, actually not to get too sidetracked, but that's one of the benefits of board games is it's almost like the built-in one shot mm -hmm. that totally. uh, you can just kind of bring people together that I think sometimes people underestimate the value of a one shot. I really like it myself, but sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there oh no that's fine please stop me whenever you can <laughs> um, uh but yeah and then, then um what what is it? i tried i tried fourth edition a bit 
uh, wasn't super into it because I felt like a lot of people say fourth edition is like a video game. And I agree with that, but I don't mean it in like a derogatory way. Like video games are great. Wow is actually very good. And it felt a lot like wow. But at the end of the day, I was like, oh, but I can just go play wow. I don't need to play this this uh, RPG to get that experience that I get on my computer. And so I didn't play too much of it. I think like one campaign. And then um, a few years later, oh, then I got into DCC for a little while, got really into that, was really, really liking it. And then fifth edition came out. And I, as soon as that stuff came out, I started playing that with friends and I've run that, gosh, I think every, at least once a week, every week, I have run fifth edition since its release, which I'm a little tired of it at this point. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a, getting a little bit like, well, I want to play other stuff, but then I also do run other games. I run a bunch of DCC, but I will like buy their module and then I'll be like, oh, hey, everybody, let's play this two shot of DCC. So it's kind of more sporadic for that game and for the other like indie RPGs that I try out. But I love uh, uh, reading different RPGs. I got a whole video series I've been doing on YouTube with one of my friends where we're reading through minimalist RPGs. So I've been reading a ton of different games lately, which is just such a great experience. I mean, maybe not as good as playing them, but a really, really fun time to just see how different people approach different mechanics, what cool little ideas people fit into like a, the small package of a minimalist game. So that's been really, really fun. And so when you went back into like the, the game world of 5e um, and what kind of drew you in, like, was it just the, the, the zeitgeist or stranger things or like kind of what brought you back into the, into the world? Um, you know, I think because like, I never lost my interest with RPGs. I think that I just found 5e really accessible in a way that I didn't find second or third edition accessible. Right. Like, like I didn't like, again, I'll say fourth is pretty good in terms of like, I didn't find that inaccessible at all. I found that very accessible. It just wasn't the kind of game I was looking to play. Uh, whereas 5e felt like, oh, this is very accessible and it's the kind of game I'm looking to play. Also, as I get older, I'm just like, have no patience for like huge tomes of rules and like lots of charts and all sorts of different things like that. So I found 5e very refreshing at the time of its release. I think since then, I've kind of grown to the point where I'm like, I kind of like less than what 5e is giving. Uh, all the class archetypes and stuff, I feel like really bog down the game. Um, but yeah, it's... It, I. You, hear, you probably heard this from a lot of different people, and I think it's a common sort of thing that 5e feels like older editions, but it also feels modern. And I assume that was like Merle's and Crawford's sort of um, what they were trying to do with it, and they succeeded largely. And, and when did you start to think of, boy, I want to like actually design, whether it's supplements or games, uh, for like 5e to begin with, I guess? Uh, oh, gosh, I mean... I wanted to design stuff really early on. I think even in the 90s, I, I have like old cut up pieces of cardboard of a card game I started to make that was like Gundam themed <laughs> um, because yeah, I was into doing that. Uh, I tried and failed very badly to make a couple of different fantasy style RPGs when I was very young, when I was like in middle school, right? And then I lost interest doing that when I was in high school and college because I just kind of wanted to do general fiction writing or some other kind of writing that wasn't game design. And yeah, then with 5e, the more I played it, 
and sort of dissected the mechanics, the more I wanted to tinker with them. And that's kind of uh, why I started messing with that. And then the DM Guild came along and I was like, oh, well, that's a very easy way to post stuff. Um, and yeah, and then I just was like, I need to come up with like a cool, weird idea. And I, and I did with my first <laughs> big project, which was all about cooking and eating monsters. Uh, and people really responded well to that. So I was all about it. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, that was kind of a unique item uh, within the game world at that time that, uh, you know, people probably had done it like casually. I think I remember as a kid, it was always like, oh, we could chop up this monster and eat it. And, but you actually took it to the next level. And can you just kind of explain that it's called the joy of monster cooking and kind of your approach on it? It's a little bit obviously kind of tongue in cheek and you yeah. did it kind of in a fun way. So, yeah, definitely uh, a, a joke on joy of cooking. Uh, my my parents are really into cooking. Uh, a little bit of that has rubbed off on me, but I'm not that great at it. Not as great as they are. Um, but one of my good friends, uh, Chris Boudreau, who's my co-author on that book and on a lot of different projects that I do, uh, he went to culinary school. So when I came up with the idea for this book, I pitched it to him and he was all about it. And he was like, oh yeah, no, we, we can use like real recipes and just substitute the monster part for whatever the meat or whatever would be in it. And I was like, great. So I think when we actually wrote it, um, all, so like I was saying, it's real recipes. I should backtrack a little bit here, <laughs> not get ahead of myself. It, uh, it's like you said, um, you kill monsters and then you take their parts and you cook them up and eat them and the dish will give you some kind of modifier, right? Um, and <laughs> the, uh, yeah, it's very silly, uh, kind of gross. Uh, the sequel to it was much grosser, but <laughs> but the uh, but yeah, all the recipes in it are actually modeled after after real recipes. So if you were to replace the monster part with a type of meat, which is kind of inherently obvious from the recipe that it's referencing, you could actually cook that as a meal, and it would be good. I mean, it should come out pretty well. I think I've only tried one of them, but um, yeah. Uh, and then we just uh, wrote in a bunch of fun flavor text from the cook's perspective. And that was also kind of inspired by Joy of Cooking and how it has those intros where they the, the author talks about like, oh, yeah, you know, when I was vacationing in France, these are the, the recipes that I was trying out and I'm going to put some of them in the book. So we were like, oh, OK, let's do something like that but with monsters. Um, so we gave, we got to give the cook a personality with some flavor text. Again, something in the sequel we did a lot more of. And uh, I got to do a bunch of fun mechanical work, pretty much enjoy monster cooking and, and its sequel, Devilish Desserts. All of the mechanics in it are entirely by me. And all the recipes are a mix. Well, all the other texts are a mix of Chris and my writing. But most of the actual like measurements for ingredients, stuff like that is him because again, he went to culinary school. He knows how to cook much better than I do. And uh, he was, he did that. He handled all that very well, I think. Are, are you and Chris both located in the same uh, city and? Not even remotely. No, <laughs> we, um, we met very briefly when I was in college because he was friends. He didn't even go to the school. He was just friends with one of my friends who went to the school. And I think I, yeah, I met him like once at a party and we said hey to each other and that was it. But we like friended each other on Facebook and then didn't talk for years. And then when I was getting into fifth edition, 
he was posting something about that on Facebook too, about how he was getting into it. So I messaged him, I'm like, oh, do you want to play in one of my online games? And he was into that. And then we did that. And I was like, oh yeah, dude, we should like, we should hang out more. And we started doing like podcasting stuff together and hanging out a lot online. And then we started writing stuff together, but he lives in Florida. So we've, I don't think, so we haven't met in person since college. Uh, <laughs> we've met, we've been in the same room once ever, but we've known each other for a very long time and are good friends that have done lots of projects together. I always find that amazing when you hear those stories of uh, those like random encounters uh, that you meet somebody and then it ends up actually impacting your life. And obviously in a positive way that you guys have maintained a relationship and built things together. Yeah, it's wild. I think I almost hung out with him like three weeks ago because I was going to Florida to visit another friend. Uh, and I messaged him and I said, hey, Chris, I want to be in Florida. Are you are you near like this city? And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm like right near there. We should definitely hang out. And I'm like, awesome. This is what I'm going to be there this week. And he was like, oh, actually, do you remember how I told you how I had a, my extended family had a thing going on that I need to travel to Massachusetts to do? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh, it's that week. So we swapped states. For- in the night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that's too bad. We're, we're going to have to do a Kickstarter to get you guys together or something like that, just to yeah. make sure those connections remain. I cool. mean, we talk all the time. That's fine. So what, uh, so after the, the cooking books, what other products did you kind of uh, delve into getting towards uh, uh, Azag, which we will talk about shortly? Oh yeah. Gosh. What else, what did I do after the cooking book? Um, we did a couple other smaller pieces on the DMs Guild, like um, one of some free stuff, some like one dollar uh, things that were just little minor mechanical things. Like I think I did something that was like expanded meta magic stuff, where I was just converting things from the third edition meta magic that I remember from playing third edition, and I was like, why didn't they port this to fifth? I'll just do that. It'll be like a one page document, easy. And I just threw it out there, and people liked it. Um, and uh, then, unless I'm forgetting something, I think then like COVID hit uh, and I got furloughed from work, which was kind of terrifying, but also just, I was at home for a really long time. And I was like, okay, well, I need to occupy my mind with something. So I just started writing stuff and I started trying to make more music which is something that I also like to do sometimes in my spare time but I don't usually buckle down and really do and out of that came the shifting city project which you can get on Bandcamp or on my itch and I was really happy with how that came out like uh oh just a weird setting guide I got to write a bunch of short fiction for it which is something I like to do a lot uh, I kept it system agnostic because I wanted to try and do something that could be played in like any sort of fantasy RPG. Uh, and I wrote a bunch of instrumental music tracks and I got to use a bunch of fun synthesizer VSTs that I had like downloaded and purchased and just been meaning to use, but I had no excuse to use them. So I just spent all this money on this stuff that I wasn't <laughs> doing anything with. Um, but yeah, so uh, I, yeah, I loved how that project came out. And uh, Chris helped me a little bit on that. And yeah, and that, was a, and I, that was a bit of a departure from like, you know, 5e and for sure, agnostic. And even the aesthetic was kind of like, if I have to say, it's like got an OSR 
yeah. kind of vibe to it. And did you make a conscious choice to go like, I want to move into this direction? Yeah, I did. I think that, again, because I had all that extra free time, I started reading more games and more random stuff. I got really into Appendix N stuff because I think in the I had read Conan, right? I'd read a bunch of the Conan things uh, and a bunch of Lovecraft. But I hadn't really looked at like Fafford. I hadn't looked at Vance. I hadn't looked at um, Clark Ashton Smith. So I started reading a bunch of those authors and then that sort of led to reading more random OSR stuff. I looked back at DCC. I got a little more into that. I looked at old school essentials. I actually did a stream uh, for a little while online of um, old school essentials games back when it was BX essentials or BX. Yeah, I think it was BX essentials is what the original title for that was. And just being like, man, you know, Again, like fifth edition, I like it, but I was getting kind of bored with it. And I wanted to see what else was out there. And I saw all these really creative people doing really cool stuff, really great things with layout. I mean, people talk a lot about Borkborg because it's, you know, wild in terms of its layout. And that was so cool to, to see. And I think kind of on the other end of that spectrum, old school essentials, where it's everything's very concise and very nicely put together. Um, yeah, and that got me thinking, like, I also, I need to try in my hand at some weirder layout things, because, like, with, so with Joy of Monster Cooking, that layout looks nothing like a fifth edition book. Uh, it looks specifically like Joy of Cooking. Like, I literally took my Joy of Cooking cookbook and scanned some pages so that I could find a font that matched, and I could, like, have the spacing and the way the paragraphs are structured all match that. And I did that because like, oh, it's the tongue in cheek. It's like the joke of it. It's funny that it looks like this real world book. But then later on, I was like, oh, why don't I take a weird different approach to everything I write? Like, why am I making anything look like a normal fifth edition product or even any kind of normal RPG product? I can go any way I want. It's there's why constrain yourself, right? So that was a lot of the shifting city. There was a lot of me experimenting with weird things uh, in that as well, and lots of different fonts. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think it looks really great, and I don't know. So you have two products that I especially want to like talk about is uh, Azag and um, Narfel, because I think both of those are interesting in their own kind of right. And I wanted to explore your design decisions and your design aesthetic as you approach them. Which one actually came first in in the ideation process of like because they both kind of came out approximately the same time like no, i mean azag was before azag i think the fall maybe even the summer at some point but but then narfell was like december right it was in the winter um but if i maybe azag was even earlier than that i don't know i don't know what i put time is a flat circle <laughs> um, it's one big uh, timeline so we're yeah uh but but yeah uh, a lot of both of those two projects were at that point uh, I had made some connections to people in the RPG community, a lot of indie creators, a lot of different artists and some layout people. And I really just wanted to work with them on projects. Um, not that Chris wasn't still involved because he was, <laughs> I didn't forget about him, but uh, like with Azag, I was like, oh, Diogo Noguera, what a treasure. Like what a gem of a person and a great designer super talented, really smart. 
and really creative. And I just thought I should message this guy and just see if he wants to work on this. And I did. And he was very receptive to that. So I was like, cool, well, I'll put you on the team. Uh, I had worked with Logan Stahl, who did some art for Shifting City prior to that. I don't remember how I originally found his stuff. I think it was he had worked on some other game or he just posted his art on like Facebook or Twitter or something. And I had really liked it. So I contacted him, got him to work on Shifting City. He actually has told me in recent past that like the Shifting City, especially like the cover for it was like a big deal for him because it a lot of other people got their eyes on his work and then wanted to hire him for other stuff. And he's been able to like go full time as an artist, oh, which is amazing. I'm so happy for him. But uh, yeah, so I wanted to work with him more. So I got him on board to do a lot more art for Azag. Uh, I reached out to Louis Mello, who is just an artist whose work I had seen in the past and I loved but is a professional artist who charges very professional rates. Uh, but I figured out a way that I could pay him. So I was like, okay, I'll contact that guy for a really killer cover. And who, who else do I have working on that? So many people. There's a big team on that book. Uh, Safia, who is, um, I don't, I think I found her through uh, a podcast or a live stream or something where she was talking about how um, she was really into D&D and she lives in Saudi Arabia. So she was trying to get other people in Saudi Arabia to play D&D. And she was also trying to overcome like the whole like nerd, like gender gateway sort of deal uh, and deal with, with that kind of thing. Um, and just, you know, get more people into the game. Uh, and she had written some short fiction, which I checked out and I really liked. So I brought her on board or I asked her if she would like to come on board and she was interested. Uh, am I forgetting anyone? I think that's everybody who worked on that project. No, I'm not, I am forgetting someone. <laughs> um, Mahar, uh, who's awesome, who I was just looking around uh, for different indie game designers. And I was like, I would love someone from the, um, the, the RPGC community. Because I was also getting really into Zedek Sue. Mm -hmm. I didn't pronounce that right, but uh, Zedek's work uh, with Thousand Thousand Islands and some other RPGC creators and just like loving a lot of the, the vibe from the work that was coming out from down there. So I found Mahar who had made a bunch of indie games who were that were really interesting and had a, has a real talent with words and prose. And I asked them if they wanted to come on board and they were all down for it. So I got all these different people from different parts of the world and their different sort of perspectives on things. And I had each of them uh, write short stories that get included in the book. Uh, and yeah, it was just my way of like being like, hey, I like weird fiction and sword and sorcery and stuff from the appendix then. But I wanna see what people with very different perspectives of me, like what their approach to that genre is. So that was kind of just the crux of Azag um, thematically, right? Did you provide, like, I mean, when you have so many different voices combined into one product, how did you kind of uh, make sure that they were all consistent? I mean, without being consistent, you know, like everybody's got their unique style and everything. Did you kind of have like a lookbook or anything like that where you said, this is kind of what I'm going for? And yeah. what do you think? Yeah, our Google Drive document, um, I had, I mean, partly for the artist, but also for the writers, 
was I was just like, oh, okay, here's all all these images that are like things that like things from the real world that I would like to try to have like, you know, combined into this fantastic world. And I invited those other people who were working on it to add their own stuff to that folder and flesh it out sort of with me. And like, I, I had editorial control over everything. So whenever people would sort of introduce concepts that I was like, I don't know if that really makes sense in the world, I would usually go to them and be like, I like where you're going with this, but, oh, here's an example. Um, Mahar's story, which is amazing. Uh, there's a, there was a line in the original draft of it that talked about heaven and hell. And it was like, I forget the exact wording of it, but it was really cool. Um, and I remember reading it and thinking this line sounds awesome, but heaven and hell aren't really a concept, right? In this world that makes sense because it feels like something from a monotheistic culture, which is like not the culture that's being represented in the book. And kind of like, I don't know, it felt too modern. It felt a little too like mainstream. Uh, and I talked with them about it and we kind of reworked it in the text to be a different thing. So we got to kind of have that line and have it have the same kind of emotional punch but change up the way it was presented. So there was like some of that uh, and also just listing the different stories that I wanted people to make reference to. And those also sort of served as a guideline. And I think that helped a lot. And when you deal with artists, because I mean, there's a lot of like up and coming uh, designers that maybe, okay, they can write and they have these ideas, but to actually bring art to life and is sometimes like, an unknown for them how do they approach it is what how do you like develop those relationships with artists how do you do the iterative uh, versions of it and like is there ever any awkwardness uh, to try to bring it to life um you know I don't usually find there to be a whole lot of awkwardness um I love working with artists um I think there's the sort of the obvious thing is like don't be a jerk Right. Like, especially if these people aren't doing art full time, which I think at the time that Logan was doing Azag, he wasn't, or maybe he was just on the cusp of that. But like, yeah, these are people who have probably full time jobs and art is very time consuming. Right. Especially if they're sending you something and then they're you're giving feedback on it. So they're going to go back and change it. Things like that. Um, so make sure you budget time for them. Make sure you discuss uh, the amount of money that they should be getting paid, right? Like, don't try to lowball artists. It's not cool. These people already don't get paid almost anything. Being an artist is like a thankless job most of the time. Uh, so, yeah, just like have your budget together. Have your timeline together because that makes everything so much easier. And know, like... Also, there's a lot of different guides online that a bunch of people who actually write on the DMs Guild, I think MT Black, who is one of the big writers on the DMs Guild, put together this guide. And I remember reading through it and it was just like the rates that he usually sees for artists or layout designers or copy editors or all that stuff. So I remember reading that and being like, oh, okay, this is what the prices are. And I read like a couple other similar documents and I'm like, all right, I understand what things cost. And then when I go and commission art, I have budgeted that much money, right? Um, but yeah, and um, like with any kind of creative process, 
similarly to the writing thing you kind of throw out your ideas and say like okay what i'd like an image that like looks kind of like this or has this kind of pose um or this kind of thing and then they'll send you something back and it might not even be exactly what you wanted or expected but often especially if you're working with really uh good artists they will show you something that is really cool that you weren't expecting and you're and it gives you all these other ideas and you're like oh yeah that's great go with that flesh that out give me like more of this kind of like costume design element for this character is super interesting or like this monster design like I love where you're going with like this like the way the head looks or something like go with that exaggerate it um so yeah I love working with artists because I can basically just say here are the guidelines here's the structure I need but here's the space for you to play around in it and do what you want to do as an artist and be creative in it and send me some stuff and let's work together and figure out like what it's going to look like. I think the, um, especially the cover for Azak was a lot like this. Working with, with Lewis was amazing. Like that guy, if anybody has the chance to work with Lewis Mallow, go do it because he was so cool to work with. I think it was like, I was talking to him about the kind of game it was and he did a bunch of research on it. Cause it's like, Azag uses, um, uh, advanced fighting fantasy the rules of that as a base for the hack it's like a hack of that basically and uh i told him that but i didn't tell him that that was an influence on like the art or anything i just mentioned it and he looked up all of the book covers for all the um like the warlock of firetop mountain and that whole series and he was like oh i i noticed these different themes in all of these book covers so what if i take that theme and then use that in the cover for this and i'm like dude, that's such a cool idea. <laughs> um, and it was great. The, that whole email chain, sometimes I go back and read through it and I'm like, this was awesome. This is a very interesting creative process. And it just, so, yeah. and it just clicked. And uh, so I think we probably glossed over Azag's like uh, concept in general. Can mm -hmm. you just maybe go back and fill us in on when, when did that idea first come to you? The, 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 I, the concept and the art and the vision for it? Yeah, well, I think, like I had said, I'd been reading a lot of Appendix N. So the Sword and Sorcery and Weird Fiction, I'd been reading a lot of that stuff, and I was getting really deep into it. And I just thought, okay, well, I know a lot of people have written games that are like this, but do I want to write my own version? Yes, I do, because I was too into it, right? Uh, and then I found out about Troika which is great. You should check it out. Not, It's not like, thematically, it's not like the kind of thing that I made but it's a wonderfully written game uh, and the mechanics are great. And I started reading through that and I was like, you know, what is this based off of? And then I found out it was based off of fighting fantasy. So I stopped reading Troika. I think I was like halfway through it or I had read the first like bit of rules on it and I stopped and then went back and I bought a copy of Dungeoneer. You can tell I have these, I got these out before we started, so I could have them right here. I have a copy of Dungeoneer, uh, which is the advanced fighting fantasies, the system, the rule system they made uh, to go along with like, so that you could play the adventure books as an RPG, right? Um, and I read through it and I was like, oh, I get it. I like this a lot. I actually like this more, more than Troika. Um, there were just some weird fiddly rules that did, hadn't aged very well. So then I started tinkering with those, 
making like a different way to approach modifiers, all this different stuff. Then I went back to Troika, read the rest of that, really liked that. And I was like, yeah, this system is great. It's so, it's so like minimal. It's very streamlined. It's, you can interpret a lot of stuff. It's very cool. Uh, so I thought that would be a great basis for uh, my game that I could fit sort of my, my weird fiction theme on top of. When, um, and so you developed the system, but you kind of hacked at it and you updated it and you kind of like made it your own and you added, uh, you know, things like the, the step process of like uh, difficulty and adding oh, yes. the polyhedral the dice. dice. Mm -hmm. Did you, at what point did that click for you that you went, oh, this is, this is going to work. And did you play test it or was it just a, like, hey, I'm going to try this? Um, I mean, I definitely play tested it, yeah. but uh there was uh like i said I, I read a lot of dcc and dcc has its funky dice chain which i love but it does use a bunch of dice that are not very common because you know the idea is you've got your d20 is your die that you're starting with and then you want to go up or down and there's no dice in the normal polyhedral bag right that are anywhere near the d20 they're all near the d6 so then when i was reading advanced fighting fantasy and i was like man I want to do modifiers, but I don't want to add stuff because I want to avoid math as much as possible. I was like, oh, I could use a dice chain like DCC, but I can just use the regular polyhedral dice because they move up mostly from the D6 and get that sort of smooth incremental bonuses or penalties, depending on how it's being applied. Uh, and yeah, I was super, I felt very clever when I thought that. And then, and then uh, I started playtesting it and I was like, oh yeah, this works. This is great. I'm very happy with how that, how that turned out. Um, the only downside, right, is if you're a fighting fantasy purist, then you just want to use D6s. You don't want to use the polyhedral dice and you probably want to use a chart for things like damage and stuff. And I'm not going to, you know what, I'm not going to yuck anybody's yum here. But uh, I, I feel like at this point in history, most of us have at least one set of polyhedral dice. So like, well, they're laying around anyway, just use, use them. <laughs> Why not? Do you remember back in the day? I mean, you were eight years old. What was it like early 90s? It was actually hard to get polyhedral dice. Like, I think a lot of people that might be watching this of a younger age, it was not an easy thing like there's not that many hobby stores and game stores around and obviously not online purchasing at all yeah no for sure i think that like there was that, that like when advanced Fighting fantasy and when dungeoneer came out were the 80s right so i think the idea that they were like let's just use d6s probably made a lot of sense in terms of accessibility for them but outside of if you were playing D&D, you probably had the polyhedral dice set. But if you weren't, you probably didn't. You might have had D10s, maybe, because that's what a lot of other systems use, like Palladium was D10s, right? And Vampire was D10s. But yeah, otherwise, I mean, it was uh, those hobby shops were a little fewer and far, far between, especially in the 90s. I feel like there was that weird... I wasn't around for it, but there was that weird surge in the 80s when D&D first got really popular. And then it definitely waned once you get to 1990 uh, until it spikes again, I don't know, in the mid to late 2000s, a little bit, and then much more when you get fifth edition on the scene. Yeah, I think, yeah, it kind of spiked again with the uh, the D20 and open game license. Yeah, like, for sure. Lots of people got back into it. 
but um so you put together this book and you added a soundtrack to it. How did that your own music tastes and likes kind of play into that soundtrack? Yeah, well, so with Shifting City, I did the music myself. But for this project, I knew I wasn't going to have time to do that. And I knew that I really wanted a psychedelic rock soundtrack because it just felt super appropriate for something that deals with weird fiction, right? Like especially one of the cornerstone stories, not in terms of how good the story is, but how good the world building in the story is, is like a lot of probably the, uh, maybe the dream quest of unknown Kadath or the doom that came to Sarnath. So like Lovecraft's dream cycle stuff and how strange they are. Uh, and I just would read those and be like, yeah, psychedelic rock feels like it pairs really well with this especially like early pink floyd stuff i think i was listening to like saucer full of secrets uh their their second album when i was like reading through some some dreamland stuff and i was like yeah this works really well uh and i knew i couldn't make that kind of music because i don't have that kind of talent but i had found um loot the body on um i don't remember how i came across him probably twitter i think and he had already made an album of D&D themed um, psychedelic rock songs. So I reached out to him and I was like, hey, man, if I pay you, will you make a, an instrumental soundtrack for this game? And he's, he was super receptive. He was really into it. Uh, and because I had made Shifting City and put it out as an album, which he had liked, he was, he, I remember him saying to be like, I know you're super legit because you already made a project like this. So if I get in on this project, it will happen, right? Like, and it's going to come together well. So I was felt very happy with myself. So I'm like, oh, very good. My, my street cred, I can, <laughs> I can be trusted by other creatives. So, uh, so he was happy to do it. He put it together um, and I paid him for it and it came out great and I love it. So that was awesome. <laughs> Well, it was a really nice package um, that you put together and a lot of different artists and visions that you combined into like a cohesive product but then when did it become like a print product uh with uh leo from uh lfosr which i've yeah. had on uh on my uh, podcast before and so how did that relationship develop um with leo let me think how did we first contact each other i think he just messaged me on like discord or something <laughs> i don't 100 percent remember uh but i remember him being like oh yeah your work is great. Do you want to do a print copy of Azag? And I was just like, um, oh, I hadn't even considered that. I'm not a big like print person. I mean, I have actually most of the stuff on the shelf are movies and video games, <laughs> but uh, I have some print stuff. And I used to buy a lot more print stuff during the third edition days. But these days I feel like digital is much more accessible. And I kind of just will grab that. So getting a, making a product and then thinking of putting it into print is not usually part of my process. Uh, but he was like, no, no, it's really good. I would love to put it in print on my store. And I was like, okay, guy, I don't even know you. And then I looked <laughs> at his store and I was like, oh, this is a really nice. <laughs> you, this person makes extremely nice products. The fact that they want to make a print copy of my product is should be extremely flattering because their work is really nice. So then I went back to him and I was like, yes, please do that because that would be awesome. 
Uh, and yeah, kind of the rest is history on that. I think I remember having lunch with Yohai Gao. So Yohai Gao used to live in the same town that I lived in. I moved, not him. <laughs> I moved away, but we, I still live like 45 minutes away. And I think we discovered this because we both listed our hometown on our Twitter bio. And he messaged me on Twitter or I messaged him or we were talking about something else. And then he messaged me and he was like, hey, we live in the same place. Did you know that? And I was like, oh, I didn't know that. He's like, oh, do you want to like get lunch? And I was like, oh, sure. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> um, and he uh, was a lot of fun to talk to. I mean, as you know, because you've had mm-hmm. him on. Uh, and he, one of the things he kept stressing to me was like, oh, you got to get your stuff in print. The indie game community loves buying stuff in print. And I was like, I mean, okay, I, I, I guess I'll try and do that. So um, yeah, that was another thing where I was like, you know, Leo wants me to do that. And he was like, oh, yeah, go do that. Leo was great. <laughs> so that was, um, I kind of had to be pushed into it because I'm d- a dummy, a big dummy. But <laughs> Did you have uh, to do... Happened. Did you have to do like a big uh, re- retrofit for the bleeds and all that kind of stuff after you not, did the digital version? Not a huge amount, um, a little bit, but I think the bigger problem was the original format of Azag is uh, eight and a half by 11 mm-hmm. because I don't know, I was just like paper size, why not? And Leo had to explain to me that that's not the aspect ratio for zines. And I was like, oh no. Let me see if I can fix this. Uh, so I did a little bit. And also Leo has like an in-house layout artist person for just these kind of things. So uh, he, so I sent stuff to him and then he sent it to that person. And they kind of worked with me to, to get that going, which was also very good because it was kind of a huge undertaking for if I was going to try and do it all on my own. Um, and do you have a background using like whatever desktop publishing software that you choose? I, I am all self-taught. I just think Photoshop is neat. So I started messing around with it. I, oh, here's something about me that is people think is stupid. Another way in which I'm a big dummy. Uh, I do all of my design on Photoshop. I don't use InDesign at all. Um, or I used to use GIMP for everything. And then I got enough money to buy Photoshop. So I think like Joy of Monster Cooking is laid out with GIMP, but then everything after that is Photoshop. And uh, everyone always tells me whenever I tell them that they're like, no, you should use InDesign. It's like much easier to do what you're doing and you can do it just as well. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't want to learn another piece of software. <laughs> I just, I still don't even know how to use Photoshop. Like all the things you could do with it. I always, I'm like, I wish I could do this thing with Photoshop and then I'll Google it and be like, oh, I can do that. Here's a tutorial. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, I'm still stuck in my stubborn mindset on that thing but that was another thing where i'm very thankful to leo where i was like here are all my files and he's like they're all photoshop files (laughs) and i'm like yeah sorry that's how i lay out things my bad (laughs) (laughs) but and obviously it was successful enough i noticed uh, there's an an announcement for the uh, second printing yep Uh, pre-orders are actually on uh, lf-osr.com right now if uh, people are interested and there's also the the dream thieves and tell us how like the second printing and the dream thieves fit together uh well the i mean the we were going to do a second printing because the first printing sold out really fast and leo had expressed interest in doing a second printing and i was all about that because i was like cool i'll get paid more money i'd love to uh and 
he was like, hey, we should do something else like to to go with it. And I thought, well, I think the most obvious thing is to do a module because the ASAC gamebook is basically like it's the rules. But like I, we were talking about earlier, the rules are pretty simple and condensed. So most of that book is really world lore and like different adventure hooks and NPCs and all sorts of stuff like that. So I felt like if there was going to be another book, it shouldn't be a world supplement because that's already included in the core book. So it needs to be an adventure. And I had some ideas for adventures and I started writing them and I was like, these aren't good. I don't like where I'm going, where any of these are going. And then I looked back to the team and when Diogo had been working on the book, he had contributed probably the least stuff, not because I didn't want more stuff from him, but because at the time he just had a bunch of other projects that he was working on simultaneously and couldn't devote more time to Azag during the window in which we were constructing it. So I, so I went back to him and said, Hey, when you have to like, let me know when there's an opening in your schedule, because I'd love you to do a module for this. And he was really down to do that. Uh, so it, it feels great because it's finally like he got to have a little bit of influence on the main book. And now he really gets to like stretch his legs and do his take on the world um, and the system and stuff. And like all kind of like the ways he didn't get to in the main book. Uh, and I was happy to facilitate that to happen. And then, you know, Leo was like, yeah, we'll do a print copy of it. Uh, and of course, Diogo was very happy about that because Leo's story is great. And he was gonna, he's gonna make a great, great print copy of it. Well, I think it's like an awesome product that you put together. And I think all the different elements coming together. But before we leave, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the uh, your um, Narfell um, game that you put on the DM skill. And I mean, we talked a little bit prior to um, coming on air. But the one thing that I re really struck me is like its format, which I love, but it's not typical of the DMs Guild. So yeah. how, how did that come to be? Well, uh, like I was saying, trying to mess around more with different layouts and things. And one of the, I, I like fifth edition, but I think the layout in those books are like hot garbage. Like I really, really don't like how those books look. Uh, and I was, which is why I always try and do something a little different when I posted stuff in the past, but I was also thinking like when I was making ASAC, here are people in the community that I want to work with. Who have I, who do I really want to work with that I haven't had the chance to work with yet? And Gontijo was the top of my list in terms of layout artists. I had seen his work on Into the Bronze, which I thought was spectacular. Uh, and I think, I think, I don't remember if it was during Narfell or after, I think it was after actually, but he put out this, this book called Blurred Lines. That's just, it's a treat for the eyes. Like it's so, so cool to look at. Uh, and it's very well written as well. But uh, yeah. And I was just like, I got to work with this guy. He, he just looks incredibly talented. And I think it was uh, Yohai or somebody else in the indie community who, when I mentioned Gontijo, they were just like, oh yeah, he's great. He's a really nice guy. You should contact him. He'd probably love to work on something. I was like, cool. So uh, I did and I got his rates and they were super reasonable. So I said, you know what? This is a big book. It's probably going to be like around a, I, originally it was planned to be around 50 pages and then it ballooned to like around a hundred pages. Uh, but his, I still had the budget for it. So I was like, let's, let's do it. Let's get you on that project. And the other big person on there was Brian Yaksha, 
who uh, had written Rachel, Rachel, which had been nominated for an Annie. And I had seen an interview with him, I think on uh, Plus One Experience Points, uh, Tony Vicinda's channel, and had really, really been interested in the, his approach to game design and writing and stuff. So I decided I'm going to contact this person and see if they want to write a section for the book. So I did. He was really down to do that. So got him in on board. Chris worked on a little bit too. And I also pulled in my friend, Dan, who I started gaming with, who has since you know, went to college for writing and is trying to get more into writing. So I was like, hey, man, you want to write on this book I'm putting out? And he was into it. So that was super fun to get uh, to get him to be in print. Uh, oh, quick side thing about Dan, just to, because I'm very proud. <laughs> um, so like I said, I got into DCC and I would constantly be like, Dan, DCC is great. And he was like, yeah, it's pretty good. It's cool. And then Goodman Games do their book, uh, Tales from the Magician's Skull, I think it's called, their short fiction anthology book. And they were having submissions. They were like, uh, they had an open thing for open submissions. And at the time I was working on a project. So I wanted to submit something, but I didn't have time to write anything. And I went to Dan, I was like, Dan, you like writing fantasy fiction. You write great fantasy fiction. I've read some of the stuff that you've put together. Your characters pop off the page. They're awesome. Go submit to this. And he was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll think if I can about coming up with something. And he did and he got in and he's going to be in the book that they're putting out. I think it's this summer. I don't remember what issue number it is. I have a bad friend in that way. I've forgotten. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I'm just like so jazzed that he was able to do that. Wow. It's very cool. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the Narfel was again me being like, these are different people from the community that I want to work with. And I want to bring their style and their different, the way they approach writing and laying out RPGs to see what kind of things they could bring to a project like this. And Narfel, for those that are uninitiated as to like the, the background of it, can you just give us a quick elevator pitch of what Narfel is? Uh, Narfel is a setting document. It takes a region from the Forgotten Realms, which is an Arctic tundra uh, that has a very dark history of an evil empire that summoned up demons to do their bidding, sort of buried beneath the snow. And so it wasn't really fully fleshed out in Forgotten Realms. And so you saw that as an opportunity to, yes. to expand upon that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so not only did you do that, and but uh, going back to the layout part of it, when I look at it, it's almost like an app. Like yeah. you, you did it horizontal and uh, lots of clickable areas that take you to different parts of the PDF. And that, like it, I found very innovative and especially um, I'm trying to um, forgive me. I think um, Monty cook games, I forget the name of the game that they put out. That was basically a digital game and it's on par with that. Whereas like it's first and foremost meant to be consumed digitally. And I going back to your statement of like, you never even thought of doing as for print. And here's here it is Narfel that's really focused on the digital aspect of it. So yeah. how was it received in comparison to other <laughs> books that you put out? Not as well. <laughs> there was, so I kind of knew going in, I'm like, I'm going to make something that looks like an OSR product, but I'm going to make it for 5e because with DMs Guild, you get to use their IP. And I knew I liked this part of their IP because I thought, like you were saying, there was just enough written about it to tantalize me, but not enough for me to feel constrained. So I felt like I had a lot of room to play around with. 
Uh, and I was like, okay, well, it's got to be on the DMs Guild. So it's got to be 5e if I'm going to use this IP. Uh, but I like OSR stuff a lot. And I like layout and OSR stuff way more than I like layout and 5e stuff. So I'm going to hire OSR layout person <laughs> to do this 5e product. And I knew that that was going to be a big gamble for the audience. And also like a lot of 5e products, especially setting guide products are like, here's this region, here's a subclass for every core class in the book and also artificer that can be used in this region. Here's a background. Here's like a dozen backgrounds. Here's 50 new spells. Here's a bunch of magic items and 50 monsters and all this stuff. It's a lot of like player facing content. Uh, whereas I wanted this book to be more of a game master facing book. I, there is some player facing content in it, but very little. And a lot of the focus is, in that book is on how do you create an adventure in this region? And how do you like create NPCs for it? How do you flesh out narrative and all that kind of thing? Because I feel like in a setting guide, me as a game master, that's the stuff I need and I'm going to use. And I don't care about all those other bits that other products offer. But the problem with that is people like all the other bits that other products offer. So I remember, I think uh, my friend Ted uh, did an episode on his YouTube channel about it, where he talked about three different books that were like DMs Guild releases and mine was sort of in the middle there. And there was one comment on it, only one person commented talking about my thing that in his video. And their comment was, well, this other book overviews that region and gives 50 million other things. And they like listed all the other things, the subclasses and the spells and all that stuff. So I'm just going to buy that other book. I don't feel the need to buy this. And I was like, hey, man, if that's what you're after, I get it. And I think that is most of the audience. They want those player options and they want something that looks familiar. It looks like 5e because that's the game they're playing. And I mean, I can't, I can't fault you for that. I get it. Um, so I knew it was going to be a bit of a gamble, but it's kind of my own sort of the cornerstone to how I design stuff, which is that if it's not something that I would be excited to play or be excited to um, incorporate into my game or something like that, then I wouldn't make it. So Narfel is a weird product in a lot of ways because I like weird products personally. Um, so yeah, I think sometimes that works out really well. Like with Joy and Monster Cooking, it's a really weird product, but it happens to be a weird product that people were interested in. Um, but in other ways, it doesn't work out so well. <laughs> So I definitely, yeah, I design more to my own tastes than to the tastes of the market. And that's risky. Well, I have to say, I suspect that if you took that same product and turned it away from the 5e, yeah. that, that would have been a huge hit. You know, I, I sometimes I think about that and I'm actually planning uh, another product on the dms guild where i'm bringing gontijo back to do design layout design and it's gonna look like an osr product but again it's like i really like this city in the forgotten realms so i want to make a product about it so i can't make that as an indie but i mean i could i could file off all the serial numbers right and i could mm -hmm. do that but i'm like but it's this city i like i can't look it it's it's this it <laughs> um so i yeah i'm sure that that will also not be super well received but i'll really like it 
Um, I also sometimes receive emails from people who I know have bought it or like uh, Twitter messages who have just been, who like the product really clicks with because they have the same mindset that I do uh, and they play 5e a lot. And then I'm like, yeah, you're the one person I was making this for me, <laughs> me and you, it was just us. Uh, but at some point I will probably try and bring that same kind of thing to the indie sphere. I just need to figure out the right project for it, you know? Yeah. And well, who knows, maybe you're going to be the gateway. Like I've been on record as saying that I think a lot of people that have been their first game was 5e are, you know, similar to what you had mentioned is they will get tired of it and they're going to be looking for other products that satisfy like that kind of unique itch for them. And I can see like whether it's indie scene or OSR, whatever you want to call it is going to be there waiting for them. So I'm excited to see that kind of transition point. And who knows, maybe you're going to be the gateway uh, product. Gosh, I hope so. That would be very rewarding to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I just want to say, uh, you know, as we close out here, uh, thank you for uh, coming on the show today, uh, sharing your experiences. Um, and uh, that I really appreciate you. I mean, there's a lot of designers that watch my show and, uh, you know, all the ups and downs and like, you know, the, the theory behind what you do. I really appreciate you sharing. I'm going to put links to all your designs and everybody you mentioned i'll make sure they're all in the design notes so everybody can check that out uh, but uh, just want to say thank you best of luck uh, for future products look forward to seeing them yeah thanks so much for having me gary it was great to be here